Okay. Well, this morning we're going to continue again with our four-week church membership class. If you remember, two weeks ago we began the church membership class by looking at the biblical basis for and then importance of local church membership. And then last week we looked at our philosophy of ministry here at Grace Bible Church Plantation. In other words, what we believe as a church and why we believe it, and what we do as a church and why we do it. Well, this morning what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking at our mutual ministry responsibilities. That is, our responsibilities to you as a leadership. In other words, what you can expect from us as the leadership of Grace Bible Church Plantation. And then your responsibility towards one another as a body, as well as towards the leadership of this church. In other words, what we can expect from you as church members. So let me just start by looking at the responsibilities of the leadership of the church to the congregation. In other words, this is what you can expect from us. Now before I get into the actual responsibilities of the leadership, let me first explain the leadership structure here at Grace Bible Church Plantation and then the specific responsibilities of those leaders. You see, as you study the New Testament, it's crystal clear that There are two officially recognized offices of leadership in the life of the local church, namely the elders and the deacons. And we see that, for example, in the opening greeting in the book of Philippians. If you want to turn to Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, you can see this. Philippians 1, verse 1. Recently just went through the book of Philippians on Sunday mornings. Notice how Paul opens his letter to the church there at Philippi. He writes in Philippians 1, verse 1, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, now watch this, including the overseers and deacons. Those are the two officially recognized offices of leadership in the church. The overseers, or you could call them elders, and the deacons. And notice that they're both plural there. So they're to be functioning in a plurality. You can see the same thing in 1 Timothy chapter 3. In 1 Timothy 3.15, Paul gives an explicit purpose statement for the entire letter of 1 Timothy. And he essentially says, look, Timothy, I'm writing this letter to you so that you and the rest of the people there in Ephesus will know how to conduct yourselves in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. And one of the most fundamental and foundational things that he's trying to help Timothy understand there is that in every local church there needs to be strong, unified, gifted, godly male leadership. And so in 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 13, he lists the two offices of leadership in the church, namely the overseers or elders, verses 1 through 7, and the deacons in verses 8 through 13, and then he lays out the qualifications for each of those specific offices. Now, the deacons are the serving leaders in the church who essentially free up the elders to devote themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word and the oversight of the flock, as you see in Acts 6.4. The word deacon, diakonos, literally referred to a busboy or a table waiter. Someone of very little significance or stature. Someone who serves selflessly without any regard to their own dignity. Someone who is willing to serve wherever and whenever no task is beneath them, just like their master who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. 
And the deacons are responsible for various tasks in the church that are not in and of themselves spiritual duties. For example, in that time it was for setting tables and caring for widows and other administrative duties, making the church function properly on a practical level and making sure that every team of servants is in their proper place functioning as they should be. And the qualifications for deacons are really just as high as the elders, namely that they must be men of godly character whom others in the congregation can pattern their lives after. In other words, they're to be a model of both godly character and sacrificial service. And so that's the office of deacon. If you want to know the difference between a deacon and an elder, the only real difference is the gift of teaching and the responsibility of teaching and guarding and protecting the flock, spiritually speaking. A deacon is required to have the same character as an elder. It's just that their role is really devoted to sacrificial service behind the scenes, freeing the elders up so that they can do the responsibilities that the elders do at the teaching and shepherding and spiritual level. Now, when we talk about the office of elder, there's actually three different Greek words all used interchangeably to speak of the one office of elder. First, you have the Greek word presbuteros, which is translated elder in your Bibles typically. This term really emphasizes the man's spiritual maturity necessary for the task. Second, you have the Greek word episkopos, which is translated overseer or bishop. Epi in Greek means upon. Skopos means to scope out. So you're kind of up scoping out the flock, superintending and basically responsible for it's a general responsibility of guardianship and superintending matters in the life of the local church. And then the third Greek word is the Greek word poimen, which is often translated pastor or shepherd. You see it in Ephesians 4.11, 1 Peter 5.2. This term emphasizes the task of full-range care of the flock through feeding, leading, protecting, and caring for the sheep. And so it's the responsibility of the elders to provide full-range care and oversight to the flock of God that's been sovereignly allotted to their charge, as 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 3 talks about. And let me just say that God's design is that both the elders and the deacons function in a plurality. We saw that in Philippians 1.1. There were elders, plural, and deacons, plural, in the one church there in Philippi. See the same thing in Acts 14.23. Elders, plural, were appointed in every church, singular. Or in Titus 1.5, elders plural in every city, singular. Or James 5.14, the elders plural of the church, singular. There's many other passages that teach this same thing. Now, with that being said, let me just say that you don't ever go and just put someone in a leadership position who is not biblically qualified just so that you can have a plurality of elders or deacons. You see, there may be seasons in the life of a local church where God has not providentially brought or raised up a plurality of qualified elders or deacons in a particular local church. I mean, that was whole, Paul's whole letter to Titus, is to appoint elders in every city. But at this point in time, there wasn't a plurality of elders in every city. And so at that point, you pray, you see... You ask the Lord to bring people or to raise up people in your midst who are biblically qualified to serve in those roles. You don't just appoint someone who's not qualified, nor do you go and force someone into that role who is not being compelled by the Spirit to serve in that way, as 1 Timothy 3.1 talks about. You patiently wait and pray and trust the Lord. 
So that's the leadership structure of the church. It's led by a plurality of morally, doctrinally, and ministerially qualified men who serve in the office of elder and deacon. We already mentioned the responsibilities of the deacons, and so now we'll look at the responsibilities of the elders. Here's what you can expect from the elders of Grace Bible Church Plantation. Our responsibilities as elders include, first, leading the flock by example and exhortation. Leading the flock by example and exhortation. Turn with me to 1 Peter 5 so that you can see this. 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 2, you see all three of those Greek words mentioned that I just mentioned. Presbuteros, elders, poimen, shepherd, and episkopos, overseer, exercising oversight. Notice 1 Peter 5, verse 1. Therefore I exhort the elders, plural, among you, as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you. That's the main command here. Exercising oversight. And then he gives three antithetical couplets showing how not to do it and how to do it. Notice he says first, not this way, not under compulsion, but contrast this way, voluntarily according to the will of God. Second, not for sordid gain, but contrast with eagerness. Third, nor yet is lording it over those allotted to your charge, but contrast, and here we see it, proving to be examples to the flock. You're to lead by example, Peter says. Peter says demonstrate sanctification, don't drive it. Model, don't manipulate and force. And the word that Peter uses for examples here is the Greek word tupas, which spoke of a branding mark or a blow that would leave an impression. It's where we get our English word typewriter from. When you think about a typewriter, what does a typewriter do? It strikes a blow on a page so as to leave a mark or an impression, right? And so the thought here is that you should, is that you see an impression on a piece of paper and you ought to be able to trace over that like a pattern. It's a model, an example. So Peter says shepherds are to bear the branding marks of Christ's humility for others to follow. They're to lead by example. Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.12, Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example, a tupas of those who believe. He says the same thing to Titus in Titus 2.7, In all things, show yourself to be an example, a tupas, a pattern of good deeds with purity and doctrine dignified. In other words, an elder's life is to be worthy of imitation. They must be able to echo the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. And the whole context there is putting the needs and interests of others above your own and sacrificing to serve other people. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 13.7, remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Well, not only are the elders responsible first for leading the flock by example and exhortation, but second, feeding the flock. Feeding the flock by faithfully preaching and teaching the word of God, both from the main pulpit and from smaller, more intimate venues as well. God says in Jeremiah 3.15, I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you on knowledge and understanding. Paul says in 1 Timothy 4.13 to Timothy, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching, and to teaching. That's to be your primary task, Timothy. 
It says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.17, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. He says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. He goes on to say in verse 5, fulfill your ministry. That's your primary responsibility, Timothy. Paul said in Acts 20, verse 20, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you both publicly and from house to house. Paul says in 1 Timothy 3, 2 and Titus 1, 9 that one of the necessary qualifications of an elder is that he must be able to teach positively instructing in sound doctrine and negatively refuting error. Negatively refuting those who contradict sound doctrine. And so that's the responsibility of the elders to feed the flock by faithfully preaching and teaching the word of God both from the main pulpit and from smaller, more intimate venues perhaps like a men's leadership training, a home Bible study, a counseling session, discipleship relationship, whatever it might be so that the sheep are well fed and nourished on the truth and growing and that male leadership is being developed, 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. Well, not only are the elders responsible for leading the flock by example and exhortation, by feeding the flock, by faithfully preaching and teaching the word of God, but third, they're responsible for protecting the flock from error and impurity. Protecting the flock from error and impurity. Paul said to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, 28-31, Be on guard. There's protection language. For yourselves and for all the flock. So the idea is you're a shepherd and those are vulnerable sheep. And your job is to protect them. Among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. That really raises the stakes, doesn't it? This isn't your flock, this is God's flock, and he purchased it with his very own blood. Protect it. And part of shepherding the flock includes protecting the flock. Notice verse 29 of Acts 20, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves, if you can imagine. There's Paul talking to the elders at Ephesus. He says, from among your own ranks, you elders, people are going to rise up who are going to be false teachers from the elders there at Ephesus. Pretty sobering. From among your own selves, men will rise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day, for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. That's one of the reasons why we practice church discipline, to protect the unity and purity of the church, to keep wolves out who are going to lead you astray, either morally or doctrinally. That's why Paul says to Titus in Titus 3, 10 and 11, reject a factious man after a first and second warning. Why? Knowing, or because you know, causal participle, that such a man is perverted and sinning and being self-condemned. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5 that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. See, that's the job of the elders, to protect you from wolves who come in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And oftentimes they fool the sheep because they don't come in a red suit and a pitchfork in their hand. They're far more subtle than that, right? Far more sinister than that. They come with a nice suit and a leather study Bible under their arms, often with very endearing personalities, but they're out to fleece the flock and to prey on the undiscerning. And that's one of the reasons why you need to be a member of a church with elders who are committed to protecting your soul. Well, not only are the elders responsible to protect you from false teachers and savage wolves, but also from sinning believers who refuse to repent. 
Listen, folks, Matthew 18, 15 to 18 is not an option, but rather a mandate from the lips of our Lord himself. The elders have a responsibility to protect the unity and purity of the church as well as the reputation of Christ. Now, if you profess to be a Christian, you join Grace Bible Church Plantation, then you decide that you want to be your own authority. You don't want to submit to the authority of God's Word. You don't want God to be the authority in your life. You decide that you want to live in a state of habitual, unconfessed, unrepentant sin. And please know, for your own good and for the good of this church, we will publicly discipline you out of the church. If you persist in that sin and are unwilling to repent, that's what you can expect from the leadership of this church, that we're going to labor to protect you from making shipwreck of your soul, and we're going to labor to protect the sheep from moral and doctrinal error, and we're going to labor to protect the unity and purity of Christ's church. So if you don't want that type of accountability and that type of protection in your life, this is certainly not the church for you. Not only are the elders responsible for feeding the flock, but, uh, leading the flock by example and exhortation, feeding the flock by faithfully preaching and teaching the word of God, protecting the flock from error and impurity, forth for caring for the flock, caring for the flock by praying for the sheep, visiting the sick, helping the spiritually weak, reproving sinning sheep, going after straying sheep, disciplining unrepentant sheep, restoring repentant sheep, and on and on it goes. All the care, the spiritual care that takes place in the life of the local church. Fifth, we're responsible for training up and ordaining other leaders in the church through intentional discipleship and leadership training. Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.2, The things which you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That's one of the responsibilities as a leadership is to be intentionally and proactively training up men and to be ordaining other leaders as God raises them up so that you can delegate responsibility in the life of the local church. And there's constantly shepherds being raised up who can shepherd the flock as it continues to grow. Most church growth experts are dying and coming up with gimmicks to grow the church. I shudder when more people come because that's more responsibility. That's another soul I'm now accountable before God for. And so it's a constant and continual need to be training up leaders. So as this church grows, we have leaders who can shepherd those people effectively. I only want the church to grow as fast as we can train leaders who can shepherd the people effectively. Six, the elders are responsible for administering the New Testament ordinances of believers' baptism in the Lord's Supper. Every genuine born-again believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is commanded by Christ himself to be baptized by immersion in water upon their profession of faith and their clear articulation of their personal conversion as a means of publicly identifying with Christ and his death burial and resurrection as a means of publicly identifying with a local body of believers. And so we have the privilege and responsibility as the leadership to baptize genuine born-again believers who have demonstrated the fruits of genuine conversion and have clearly and cogently articulated the gospel and its transforming power in their life. Not only that, but the church is also to regularly partake of the Lord's Supper as a means of remembering Christ's death burial and resurrection and proclaiming his death until he comes. And only those, however, who after personal examination have repented of all known sin and entrusted themselves exclusively to the person and work of Christ as their only hope of salvation are eligible to partake in communion. The elders are also responsible for counseling the flock biblically based on the sufficiency of scripture alone. 
And then finally, for providing administrative and financial oversight to the flock and to the various ministries within the church, as well as delegating administrative oversight and duties to other gifted godly leaders. And so in a nutshell, those are the two ruling offices in the church, namely the elders and the deacons, and those are their responsibilities to you, the congregation. In other words, if you join Grace Bible Church Plantation, that is what you as the congregation can expect from us as the leadership. We won't do those things flawlessly or perfectly, but we're certainly going to endeavor to by the grace of God and the power of the Spirit. We ask that you would pray for us as we seek to do so. If you want more information, there's stuff on our, our website about the philosophy of leadership as well. Well, now we move from the responsibilities of the church leaders to the responsibilities of the church members. In other words, this is what we as the leadership and the congregation can expect from you as a church member if you join. Again, this is nothing extra biblical. It's all biblical. We're just expecting you to live as the Bible calls you to live. Not perfectly, but that's the desire of your heart and the direction of your life. And so, first responsibility is to devote yourself to gathering corporately with God's people whenever they're gathering for worship. Obviously, barring any providential hindrances or issues of mercy or necessity or whatever it might be, but that's the desire of your heart and the direction of your life. When God's people are gathering, you have a desire to be gathering and you're devoted to gathering unless, of course, you're providentially hindered from being here. In other words, you devote yourself to the faithfully preached word, to apostolic doctrine, to prayer, to fellowship, and to the ordinances of the church. And let me just say that this is not only modeled for us in Acts 2.42, but also mandated to us in other places like Hebrews 10 verses 19 and following. And so turn with me to Acts 2 so that you can see this modeled for us in the first converts in the church. Acts chapter 2. Now let me just briefly set the context. In Acts 1, verses 1 through 7, you basically have the 40-day post-resurrection ministry of Jesus as he instructs his disciples regarding the kingdom of God. Then in Acts 1.8, he tells them that the Spirit is coming on the day of Pentecost to permanently indwell them and to supernaturally empower them for worldwide witness. And in Acts 1.9-11, you have the ascension of Christ as he goes back to heaven, is exalted to the right hand of the Father, the place of supreme authority in the universe. And in Acts 1.12, his disciples make a Sabbath day journey back to Jerusalem. They're all gathered around in the upper room there, but 120 believers at this point gathered that was the beginning of the church there in Jerusalem. And then Pentecost comes and the Spirit comes. And Peter stands up and preaches. And it was no seeker-sensitive service. Look at Acts 2, verses tw verse 22 and following. Peter says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst. So there you see right there one of the purposes of miracles, signs, and wonders. It was an attestation that Jesus was the Messiah. It was to authenticate him as the Messiah. But as you, as you go on, notice he says, Just as you yourselves know, verse 23, This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Watch what Peter says. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held by its power. Look at verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Amazing, the people are the ones giving the altar call here, not the preacher. 
It's not the preacher manipulating their emotions to respond to some altar call. It's the Spirit convicting them through the faithful preaching of the Word. And they're crying out, Sirs, what must we do? Notice Peter's response in verse 38. Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that they were added about 3,000 souls. So what was the pattern in the early church? Well, it's really the Great Commission. Notice, Peter goes, right, and he preaches the word. People hear the gospel faithfully preached, verses 22 to 36. Then they repented of their sins, verse 38. They believed Christ, verse 41. They were baptized, verse 41. They were added to the church, verse 41. And what happens when they're added to the church? Notice verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves. This is a present active participle in the Greek text. And so this isn't something that they did periodically when nothing better was going on. Now this is something they constantly and continually devoted themselves to. This took priority and precedence over all other things. And that Greek word translated devoting there means to adhere to, to persist in, to busy oneself with, to be fully devoted to and fully engaged in. So it says they were constantly and continually gathering as a church, to devote themselves to four things. They didn't allow anything else to get in the way of these four things. First, they were continually devoting themselves, one, to the apostles' teaching. That is, to the apostles' doctrine from the written word of God, the Old Testament, as well as the new revelation that the Spirit was giving the apostles at that time in redemptive history. They were constantly devoting themselves to the preaching of God's word. Second, they were constantly and continually devoting themselves to fellowship, to koinonia, that is to gathering to share a common participation in the life of God and to share spiritual and physical resources with one another, as verses 44 to 47 talk about. Third, they were continually devoting themselves to breaking bread, likely a reference to the Lord's Supper and the communion meal that went along with it. And fourth, they were continually devoting themselves to prayer, that is to corporate prayer. Notice verse 43, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. Many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as any might have need, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple. So notice these believers weren't complaining about having to come back for a Sunday evening or Wednesday evening service. No, they were gathering daily for worship and fellowship and loving it. They weren't lamenting it like so many Christians in our day. Now Luke says, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together. Notice this emphasis on together. It's implied in verse 42. It's explicitly stated in verse 44. Again, here in verse 47, they were devoted to gathering together corporately with other believers when the church was gathering. And for them, this was daily, day by day, the text says, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. 
But not only is this devotion to gathering corporately with God's people when they're gathering modeled for us by the early church, but it's also mandated to us. And so turn with me to Hebrews 10 so that you can see this. We just saw the model, now we're going to see the mandate. That was the description, now we're going to see the prescription. Somebody might be prone to say, well, that was good that that's what they did, but that's not what we're commanded to do. Yes, it is. <laughs> Notice Hebrews 10, verse 19. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and so through the blood of Christ, the writer of Hebrews says, we have access to God. But notice also, not only do we have access to God, we also had, have advocacy with God, verse 21. And since we have a great priest, we have an advocate over the house of God, let us do three things. These are what we call hortatory subjunctives in the Greek text. That is, three first-person plural commands. They're commands, and the writer's including himself in these commands. First, he says, let us draw near. That is, let us draw near corporately and continually for worship. And we know that's what he means because he uses the plural, he uses the present tense, and he uses Old Testament worship language that these Jewish readers would have been familiar with. And so, let us draw near corporately and continually for worship with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Notice the second hortatory subjunctive in verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. How are you going to hold fast to the gospel? How are you going to hold fast to your hope? Well, notice the third hortatory subjunctive. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Let me ask you, how much time did you spend this week considering how you were going to stimulate other believers to love and good deeds? Most Christians just come and say, yeah, I hope the service is good, I hope it benefits me, I hope I get something out of it. This is a command that you are to spend time considering how you're going to come and stimulate other believers to love and good deeds. In other words, you're not to be thinking merely about yourself, you're to be thinking about the corporate good of the body and how you're going to benefit the body. Watch this now, verse 25. Not forsaking our own assembly together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so apparently it was the habit of some to neglect the corporate gathering, and so they weren't able to fulfill what the writer was calling them to fulfill. They couldn't stimulate others to love and good deeds because they weren't with others. They weren't gathering. Now, they might have had a reasonable excuse. I mean, if you know the context of Hebrews, they were being persecuted, right? There was pressure from their own families to go back to Judaism, and there was persecution from the government. We might say, look, I've got an excuse. I'm being persecuted. They just took my property. I was just beaten. What excuse do we have here in America? <laughs> The writer says here, that's not even a good excuse just because you're being persecuted. So whatever excuse we come up with, America certainly isn't going to be good enough to neglect the gathering. So there's the mandate to constantly and continually devote ourselves to gathering with the church corporately every time the church is gathering for worship. Again, obviously, notwithstanding reasons of mercy, necessity, providential hindrance, we understand 
We're not trying to legislate how many times you come. The issue is, is that the desire of your heart and the direction and devotion of your life? Now, why is it so important that we're fully devoted and fully committed to gathering corporately with the church when they're gathering for worship? Well, first, because verses 19 to 21 tells us that Christ shed his very blood to purchase this unspeakable privilege for us. Second, because this is God's ordained means for our growth and and perseverance. Verse 23 says you're to hold fast your confession firm until the end. Well, how are you going to do that? By constantly hearing the word of God preached because every day you're hearing the siren voices of the world tempting you and tantalizing you to go to the things of the world. He says you need to constantly be sitting under the preaching of God's word so that you're being reminded of the hope of the gospel so that you can hold fast to it. And notice verses 24 and 25. It's his ordained means of growth as you encourage and stimulate and exhort one another. And then third, because this is the antidote to apostasy. Notice that in verse 26, the writer actually gives an explanation why we must not forsake the assembling of ourselves with God's people, but instead be devoted to constantly and continually gathering with them for mutual edification. Notice verse 26, for or because. In other words, here's the reason why you're to constantly and continually gather. You're not to forsake the assembly. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving a knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses, how much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's how apostasy begins. You start neglecting corporate fellowship. You start getting entangled in the things of the world. And all of a sudden, you don't need Christ anymore. He says it's a terrifying thing when that happens. When you've been exposed to truth and you walk away from it. And the antidote is by continually gathering so that you're reminded of the truth. So your first responsibility is to devote yourself to gathering corporately with God's people when they're gathering for worship to be devoted to the preached word that is the apostles' doctrine, to prayer, fellowship, and the ordinances of the church. Second, the responsibility is to intentionally stimulate others to greater expressions of Christian love. To intentionally stimulate others to greater expressions of Christian love, mutual accountability, and encouragement. In other words, you are your brother's keeper. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 3, verses 12 to 13, take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you, an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. There's apostasy again. Well, what's the antidote? Verse 13. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We just saw it in Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembly together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. There it is, the command to intentionally stimulate others to greater expressions of Christian love, mutual accountability, and encouragement. You are your brother's keeper. Turn me to Galatians 6 so that you can see this. Galatians chapter 6. In Galatians 6, verse 1, Paul writes this. Brethren, 
Even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, so that you too will not be tempted. Now that's a command, not an option. The verb restore such a one is a present active imperative in the Greek text. In other words, we're commanded to constantly and continually restore those who are ensnared in patterns of sin. He says, brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, the idea there is anyone is ensnared in sin. It's like walking through the woods and seeing someone caught in a bear trap with their leg bleeding and in need of amputation. Your reaction shouldn't be, ha, I caught you. No, it's, oh my goodness, how can I help this person? They're in an awful predicament right here. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, that is, you who are walking in the Spirit, as he just talked about in Galatians 5, restore such a one. Now, the word restore, katharitizo in the Greek, meant to restore to a state of usefulness. It's used, for example, in Matthew 4.21 of mending fishing nets, restoring to a state of usefulness. It's the same thing. If a fishing net has a hole in it, it's not going to be very useful, right? Well, it's the same thing with the person ensnared in sin. He's not useful to God. And so when you see him caught in the bear trap of sin, you're to come alongside him and help restore him to a state of usefulness. And so he says, Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are walking in the Spirit, as he just talked about, Galatians 5, 16 to 26, restore such a one back to a state of usefulness, help untie them from their web of sin, But he says, do so in a spirit of gentleness, like a cool breeze, not like a violent hurricane. Come inquiring and not accusing. Figure out what's going on and how you can help. And he says, each one looking to yourselves so that you too will not be tempted. That is, tempted first, perhaps to become entangled in that same sin, and second, to look down on that person in self-righteous pride. (laughs) Sure, glad I don't struggle with that sin. And so Paul commands us to be our brother's keeper and to confront and to help those in sin. Jesus commanded the same thing in Matthew 18, verses 15 to 18. When you see another professing believer in the congregation ensnared in some pattern of sin, we're duty-bound to confront them. Now granted, we're to do so in a spirit of gentleness, taking heed to ourselves. We're to do so first by dealing with any logs of self-righteousness in our own eyes so that we can see clearly to help our brother with the speck in his own eye, right? Matthew 7, 1 to 5. And so it's a self-purifying process because it forces us to deal with any unconfessed, unrepentant sin in our own life lest we go as hypocrites pointing out sin in someone else's life while not dealing with sin in our own life. But this is not an option to consider, rather a command to obey. This is the responsibility of every member of Grace Bible Church Plantation to care for one another spiritually. Listen, it's completely unloving and selfish not to confront someone ensnared in sin simply because you want to avoid the possibility of tension in your relationship with that person or you want to avoid the possibility of rejection. At that point, you care more about yourself than you do about that person's soul and about the glory of God. Says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Open rebuke is better than hidden love, right? Proverbs 27, 5, and 6. That person's soul is at stake, and you are God's ordained instrument to restore them. Now, granted, not everyone's going to repent when you confront them, and some people, people may even resent you for confronting them. And they may even need to be disciplined out of the church. 
because of their persistent unwillingness to repent and change. But you want to be faithful to what God calls you to do. Fearing God and loving people rather than fearing man and loving yourself. But those who are truly Christians, those who are truly godly, will thank you when you, that you confront them by inquiring as to how you can help them because they genuinely want to honor Christ. So the second responsibility, intentionally stimulate others to greater expressions of Christian love, mutual accountability, and encouragement. We are our brother's keeper. Third, exercise your unique grace gifts to build up and bless the body. Exercise your unique grace gifts to build up and bless the body. Peter says in 1 Peter 4, verses 10 and 11, and you can turn there if you want. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And so Peter, again, is not giving an option to consider, but rather a command to obey. He's commanding us to employ our God-given grace gifts to serve the body, ultimately, for God's glory. Listen, the New Testament knows nothing about an authentic Christian who's not a committed member of a local church body where they're vigorously engaged in employing their spiritual gifts and serving others. You see, through the redemptive accomplishments of Jesus Christ, grace was purchased for us. And not just saving grace, but also serving grace. And so to not be vigorously engaged in employing your spiritual gifts to serve others in the body is ultimately to denigrate the blood of Christ. According to Ephesians 4, 7-10, Christ died and rose again to purchase gifts for the church. Paul says in Ephesians 4, 8, quoting Psalm 68:18 When he ascended on high he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Christ didn't die so that we could neglect or hoard our gifts and he didn't die so that we could use them for our own self-aggrandizement or our own self-advancement like the Corinthians but rather for selflessly serving others in the body. And let me just say that Peter's command to use our gifts for the good of the body is not an isolated statement. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 7, but to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Not to edify yourself, not to exalt yourself, but for the common good. God gave each one of us a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good, to be using it. Paul says in Romans 12, 6, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace of given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. In Ephesians 4, if you want to turn there, Ephesians 4, Paul says in verse 7, but to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gifts. And then he goes on in verse 11 to say that God has given gifts to the church, namely pastors and teachers, why? Verse 12, for the equipping of the saints for the work of the service to the building up of the body of Christ. And so Paul couldn't be any clearer. He's basically saying that ministry is not a one-man show. Pastors don't do all the work. To the contrary, the pastors equip the saints so that they could use their gifts effectively so that they could do the work of the ministry so that the body can grow according to God's design. Whenever we neglect to gather when God's people are gathering, we miss out one on an opportunity to be equipped, and then two, on an opportunity to use our gifts. As a result, the body ends up suffering, and it doesn't grow according to God's sovereign design. 
And what happens is the faithful few end up exhausting themselves to try to keep things going. But again, that's not how God's designed the body. Not supposed to be that way. Every one of us is to be vigorously engaged in employing our God-given spiritual gifts to build up and bless and strengthen the body. Paul goes on, verse 15, but speaking the truth in love were to grow up in all respects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together. How? How is the body being fitted and held together? He says, by what every joint supplies. He's using an image here of a physical body, and he's comparing that to the spiritual body of Christ. And he's saying every single joint is to be supplying something. Every single member in the church is to be supplying something according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. And so again, the question is, are we spending ourselves in the employment of our gifts to build up and bless and strengthen and edify and serve the body? Are we selfishly hoarding our gifts to the great detriment and weakening of the body? Again, this is not an option, but a command. A fourth responsibility. To wear the character qualities of Christ which serve to foster unity in the body. <clears throat> to wear the character qualities of Christ which serve to foster unity in the body. To wear the character qualities of Christ which serve to foster unity in the body. And I'm running out of time, so let me speed up here. Let me just read two texts. Colossians 3, verses 12 to 17, Paul says, So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful that the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. And then one other text, Philippians 2, 1 through 8, Paul says, Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, he says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. He says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, lowliness of mind, carpet-mindedness. Instead of seeing yourself as up on the ceiling in terms of your importance, you need to see yourself down where you really are, down on the carpet. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. What was his attitude? Although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, a slave, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Listen, Christ considered our need and his comfort, and he denied himself of his comfort to meet our need at the greatest possible cost to himself, because he's characterized by giving rather than grasping. And that's how you have unity in the body, when you put the needs and interests of others ahead of your own. It's through humility and self-forgetfulness. Pride is always the cause of disunity. Humility and self-forgetfulness will foster unity. 
you prefer and you defer to others. Again, that's not an option. That's required of us. God hates pride and the division it creates. Proverbs 6, 16 and 19. And listen, Christ died to purchase unity. Ephesians 2, 14. And therefore we must diligently preserve it by walking in humility and patience and love. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. Well, fifth responsibility. Two more real quick. To sacrificially give to support the work of the ministry and to advance the kingdom of God. To sacrificially give to support the work of the ministry and to advance the kingdom of God. Psalm 24.1 says, The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and all who dwell in it. In other words, everything you have ultimately belongs to God. You're merely a steward of it for a brief season. And therefore you're to hold it loosely, manage it wisely, give of it generously and joyfully as one who will one day give an account to God as to how you stewarded what he so graciously entrusted to your care. Jesus commands us to lay up treasures for ourselves in heaven, not on earth, because where our treasure is, there our heart will be also, Matthew 6, 19-21. The psalmist prays in Psalm 67, verses 1 and 2, God be gracious to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us. Why? That your way may be known on the earth and your salvation among all nations. God bless us. Why? So that we can be a blessing to others. Listen, folks, God blesses us not so that we can increase our standard of living, but our standard of giving. So that His way may be known upon the earth and His salvation among all the nations. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. In other words, this is to be standard practice in all the churches. On the first day of every week, that is every Sunday, every Lord's Day, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collection has to be made when I come. In other words, when I come to town, I don't want to have to be scrambling to get money. You should be giving every week so that there's money there when I come. Turn me to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. This is a tremendous passage on giving. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And notice in verse 1, he says, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. He says, this is how you can know that the grace of God is operative in the lives of these believers here. That in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, in other words, they gave in such extreme fashion that it was almost contrary to what they had the ability to do. They, and entirely on their own, look at this, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation and support of the saints. Now this is incredible. Here are these poor Philippian or Macedonian Christians. Not only are they suffering persecution, Philippians 1, 27 to 30, but they're also suffering great poverty. Two great reasons to turn inward on self and to become self-focused and self-pitying and self-protecting and self-preserving and to forget about the needs and interests of others. But not the Philippians. They hear about a need in the church at Jerusalem and they're begging Paul for the privilege to participate in meeting that need. I mean, isn't this amazing? Paul didn't beg the Macedonians to give. The Macedonians begged Paul to receive. How contrary. We have to manipulate and twist people's arms to give. These people are begging Paul to take. <laughs> they understood Jesus' principle, Acts 20, 35, that it's more blessed to give than to receive. And notice verse 12, for if the readiness is present, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. 
Listen, God's not concerned with what you might do if you win the lottery. He's concerned with what you're doing right now with what he's entrusted to you at this very moment. He who is faithful in little will be faithful in much. He who is unfaithful in little will be unfaithful in much. As a member of Grace Bible Church Plantation, you have a responsibility to use the resources that God's entrusted to your care to support the ministry of the church here locally, as well as the advancement of the gospel globally through the church's missionaries. Finally and briefly, to joyfully submit to and support God-ordained, biblically qualified church leadership. To joyfully submit to and to support God-ordained, biblically qualified church leadership. Hebrews 13, 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls. As those who will give an account, let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable to you. And Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 12 and 13, But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Listen, true believers know their own hearts. Jeremiah 17:9 that they're more deceitful above all else and desperately wicked. They know the danger of apostasy. The constant need for personal accountability and sound biblical preaching and teaching in their life, and so they are quick to avail themselves to God's ordained means of grace through the local church. Again, the New Testament knows nothing about an authentic Christian who is not a committed member of a local church body where they are, one, devoted to the scheduled meetings of the church that is making it a priority to gather when the church is gathering for corporate worship, Two, intentionally stimulating others to love and good deeds and seeking mutual edification and accountability. Three, vigorously engaged in employing their spiritual gifts to serve others and build up and bless the body and to ultimately glorify God. Four, in wearing the character qualities of Jesus Christ that foster unity in the congregation. Five, to sacrificially giving to support the ministry of the local church as well as advance the global kingdom of God, and then sixth, joyfully submitting to and supporting God-ordained, biblically qualified leadership. Let me just pray real quick. Father, I know that that was a lot in a short amount of time, but I do pray that you would help us to reflect on what we've heard, to go over our notes, to think through the passages we've looked at and the implications of them, and we ask that you would help us to be faithful to what you've called us to do so that this local manifestation of the church would be strong and that it would be a tremendous reflection of Christ's bride, and that you would get glory and honor, and that we would have tremendous benefit in our own souls as a result of our faithfulness. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Any questions?